Luke chapter 22 tonight. We've only got a couple more chapters to go. And we finish out the Gospel of Luke. While you're turning there, finding your place tonight, just some reminders of things coming up. Next Tuesday night, we're having a special dessert fellowship. I don't know what that means because every Tuesday is a special dessert fellowship. But anyway, we're going to have a special dessert fellowship next Tuesday night before Bible study. Then I want to just talk for a moment uh, about some things coming up on Sunday. On March the 24th, we are having communion on Sunday. And I'll be doing a message on the cross that Sunday. And then, of course, the following Sunday, March 31st, is Easter Sunday. It is also our third anniversary as a church. So we are celebrating both the resurrection of Christ and our third anniversary on March 31st. We're inviting everyone, we always invite everyone to come between 9.30 and 10 on Sunday morning for fellowship. But we're especially inviting you to come early that Sunday because we are going to sort of celebrate our anniversary before the service on Easter Sunday. So from 9.30 to 10, there's going to be special refreshments and uh, we're going to have a special gathering out uh, on the patio before the service. So again, that's Sunday, March the 31st. Also, as far as Tuesday nights go, We have two more weeks to go in the Gospel of Luke after tonight, and then starting on Tuesday, March the 26th, we're starting a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're doing something we've never done before at the Oasis to promote this series, and we're going to be telling you about what that is on Sunday. All right, and then we'll be letting you know about that on Tuesday next week as well. And we're hoping that you help us promote this new series on March the 26th. All right. Luke 22. This chapter, again, dealing with the last hours of Jesus before he goes to the cross, really sets forth Jesus as the consummate righteous sufferer. If you had to sort of summarize what this chapter, what this passage is all about, it sets forth Jesus as the consummate righteous sufferer. And Peter even said in his first letter that Jesus suffered in the flesh to be an example for us so that we will follow in His steps. So really for the next three weeks, tonight, next Tuesday, and then wrapping Luke up, Luke 24, As we look and see how Jesus suffered, how He faced the suffering that He went through, it is laid down in Scripture as an example for us to grow into, to mature into, to learn how to suffer, if you will, like Jesus. And so be keeping that in the back of your mind throughout the passage tonight. 
Because you will notice in this passage that even though it's Jesus who's going to hang on the cross, even though it's Jesus who is betrayed, even though it is Jesus who is mocked, even though it is Jesus who is beaten and ridiculed and all of that, his focus is on preparing his followers for his leaving them, not about himself. It's never about himself. Even when he's going through a very difficult, obviously, season of his life. It was never about him. It was always about laying down his life for others. And let's face it, if we're honest, that's really hard. In fact, it's impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible in a Christian's life where we're not growing and not maturing. Because the natural bent of even a Christian in our human flesh is to take care of us and focus on ourselves and turn ourselves inward when we're going through a time of suffering. And Jesus is showing us that even in the greatest time of suffering in his life, it was his focus was others, not on himself. So again, just put that sort of over everything that we see here tonight. In the first six verses, we have the betrayal of uh, Jesus by Judas. And you'll notice there that I put in the notes a delusion of sin with regards to Israel's spiritual leaders because the Bible says the Feast of Unleavened Bread and also the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find some way to execute Jesus for they were afraid of the people. And, and the thing that jumped out at me is, here's the religious leaders of Israel. Instead of pointing them to the Christ, the, the anointed Messiah of Israel, they were actually trying to murder Him. And it's because when you and I or anyone rejects Jesus in any way, then everything else is out of place in our lives. I heard this il- illustrated in this way. If you start buttoning a shirt at the top, and you don't get the top button right, then all the other buttons are out of line. And in in a life, if you don't get the top button right, which is Jesus, if you don't receive Him, if you don't accept Him, if you do not embrace Him, then every other button in your life will be out of place. And that was true with the religious leaders of Israel. Notice also in verse 3, then Satan entered Judas. Satan had an opportunistic opening into Judas's life. Now, I don't believe that Satan or any demon can possess a Christian. I don't think anywhere in Scripture does it teach that the Holy Spirit and a demonic spirit can coexist in the same human vessel. So I believe that Judas never was a Christian. Because the word entered here means to take possession of. Literally, Judas became Satan-possessed at this point. Because there was no Holy Spirit in his life. And it reminds us all that we have to be careful that we do not provide, even though Satan cannot possess us as Christians, he can oppress us, and he's always looking for an opening into our life. Notice also I put rejection can come from those closest to us. Out of all the things that maybe hurt Jesus, I'm sure that the betrayal and rejection of Judas was right up there. 
This man followed Jesus for three years of his life and was part of his small band of disciples. And so it reminds us, as again I put there in the notes, of the sobering example of Judas Iscariot. What do I mean by that? That just like Judas, just because one is around spiritual things, just because one accompanies other people who are following Jesus, just because someone listens to the message of Jesus or about Jesus, just because someone is engaged in ministry, if you will. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Just because someone participated in seeing the miracles and the power of God, all of that does not equate into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is only when one turns to and places their personal faith in Christ can one be delivered and saved. And obviously Judas never was, even though he had all this stuff in his life. So we could say this, Based upon Judas, you could have people who come to church on a regular basis. You could have people who read their Bible. You could have people who are engaged in ministry. It doesn't mean they're a Christian. Judas is a very sobering example that spiritual activity, that hanging around others, who know the Lord, all of this, it has to come down to a personal relationship. Now, as Jesus then, after the betrayal, begins to prepare his disciples, and you'll notice there in the notes, he prepared them through fellowship with them, through his own example, and through prayer. And we're going to see this tonight. By the way, I want to go back up to verse 1 where it links the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the Passover. Notice the same thing in verse 7. Then the day for the Feast of Unleavened Bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The Passover came. And the Passover, let's remember, from the book of Exodus was celebrating the passing over of the death angel Because the blood was applied to the door and they did not enter into the judgment that was passing through the land of Egypt. So the Passover was celebrating, in a sense, God's deliverance through the blood. Right after that came the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was right after the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was signifying their journey from or out of Egypt. Remember, God told Moses and all the others, when you're baking bread for your journey, don't put any leaven in it. Don't. We need to get out of Egypt. And so it was symbolic of as they leave Egypt, leave as a pure, cleansed, undivided people, if you will, who is totally focused and committed on the Lord, and let's get out of Egypt and start our journey into the promised land that God would promise. That's why these two feasts always were in the month of April, as they are today, and always are butted up against each other. It was a, it's, it's a time where, especially in Jesus' day, Jews from all over would make sure that they were in Jerusalem for these two feasts. It was the high point of their 
religious calendar. So you'll notice there, Jesus began to prepare his disciples through fellowshipping with them by celebrating the Passover with them. Jesus sent Peter and John, verse 8, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us to eat. There was a lot of preparation involved in the Passover. They had to get the wine. They had to get the bitter herbs. They had to make sure that the lamb was boiled and and all of that. The meal, if you've ever done a Seder dinner, you know all that goes on and all that's involved with a Passover meal. There is much to prepare. And they said to him, verse 9, where do you want us to prepare it? Notice what Jesus says. He's got every detail figured out. He said to them, listen, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? By the way, you catch the fact that when Jesus designates himself, what's he call himself? A teacher. He valued teaching the word of God. Then he will show you, verse 12, a large furnished room upstairs. Make preparations there. So they went and noticed, found things, just as he had told them. And they prepared to Passover. God is in the details, folks. He had every detail of making sure that the Passover, and he took the responsibility of preparing and making sure that all the preparations, you know, were there so that when the disciples got there, that they could sort of finish and wrap up the preparations that would be needed for him to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. When the hour came, verse 14, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. And you'll notice throughout the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is big on mentioning and reminding us of table fellowship with the Lord. It's big. Luke mentions it more than any other gospel writer. Fourteen times in his gospel, he makes sure that he mentions the times when Jesus ate at a table with someone else. And notice he said to them, Jesus, in verse 15, I have earnestly desired, literally in the Greek, I have desired, desired, I have longed for, I have craved to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice the emotion here in Jesus. It's like, I I wanted to make sure that I did this with you before I went to the cross. Because Jesus was going to use this fellowship time with his disciples to prepare them for what was ahead. Folks, one of the ways Jesus prepares us for what's ahead is through fellowship. Through fellowship with him and through fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But all the more... Come together as you see the day of Christ approaching. Fellowship, being at the table together with each other. For Jesus went on in verse 16 to say, I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, this is going to be the last meal you and I share. And Jesus and his disciples had shared lots of meals in three years together. But this was going to be the last one. And it was significant in many ways. 
Then he transformed, if you will, the Passover meal and he made it something of his own. He made it out of the Passover, the Lord's table. We would call it communion. And he took some of the elements out of the Passover meal and gave them special significance in relationship to him. What he was trying to also show his followers is, I'm the fulfillment of the Passover. As, as the death angel passed over the houses in Egypt because of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and slain and blood was put on the door, I am the Passover lamb. I am the one that now delivers and rescues you from the judgment if you apply my blood to your life. So he took the cup and after he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Very significant that in the Greek language, the words take this mean to make it your own. Again, going back to the importance of a personal relationship, someone can take communion and not be a Christian. If they haven't made it their own, if they haven't applied Jesus' blood to their life, then it doesn't matter how many times you take the cup or you break the bread and you celebrate communion. That doesn't save you. We are redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold from our vain manner of life, Peter says, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those homes in Egypt, if they didn't personally apply the blood to their door, they were doomed. They couldn't live off the blood of someone next door. They couldn't expect the death angel to pass their house just because their neighbor had the blood on the door and they didn't. They had to personally apply the blood because they had to show faith in what God said and what God warned them about. They had to actively sacrifice that lamb and apply it to them saying, by doing that, I believe, God, what you have said. I believe judgment is coming. And I believe the only escape for judgment is the blood of that lamb. So then he took the bread. Verse 19, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Notice that very important. Jesus' life was never taken from him. He willingly laid down his life of his own accord. And it was a gift. That's what he's pointing out. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. The word remember here not only means to remind us. It also speaks about weight. We've talked about this before. The concept of God's glory, weight. The concept of what God's words say to us should carry weight and influence. And here the word remember means to give it weight. In other words, give what I am doing and what I will do weight in your life. Now we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So keep that concept and that, that word weight in your mind. It, it's going to play into the disciples here in just a moment. And in the same way, verse 20, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Preparation through fellowship. The Passover meal and the Lord's table was a time for Jesus to gather his followers around a table and fellowship with them. 
When you and I fellowship with the Lord, He is always using that fellowship time to prepare us. When we fellowship with each other, He can use that time together to prepare us. That's why it's never wasted. Then preparation through example. In verse 21 and 22, you have this concept that runs throughout Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And you see it wrapped up here even in the betrayal of Judas. Notice what Jesus said. Look, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man is to go just as it has been determined. There's the sovereignty part. God has appointed, He has ordained that these things were going to happen. But that doesn't mean that Judas wasn't personally responsible. Because then he goes on to say, Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, Judas is held responsible for his betrayal. Yes, God ordained this. Yes, God appointed this. But Judas was the one that opened himself up. In fact, left himself open. All those years of walking with Jesus. Judas is the one that allowed Satan the opportunity to come in and influence. And so he is responsible. So they began to question one another, verse 23, as to which of them it could possibly be who would do this. Notice that amongst the disciples, none of them thought Judas. They didn't know who it was. They were perplexed. And then notice this. A dispute... Strife, contention started among them over which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The word greatest in the Greek language, weightiest. Instead of, instead of using what Jesus just taught them at the Lord's table to make sure that they weigh what He does and who He is and what He's about to do as the weightiest thing, Notice how quickly it's all about them. It's not about him. He's the one that's getting ready to suffer. He's the one that's going to go through all the suffering, but it's about them. So Jesus took this opportunity to call them to serve. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, literally force their influence upon others. That's the way the rulers of the world do it. They will force their influence upon others. And those in authority over them are called benefactors or good deed doers. It's all about titles. Notice the contrast in verse 26. Very important. Jesus says, not so with you. It's got to be different with those who follow me. Instead, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. The reason he uses that term is because the youngest didn't even have a place at the table. And then he says, and the leader, like the one who serves. The one who literally waits upon others, is what it means in the Greek. 
And then Jesus says this, who's greater, the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves? Well, obviously the answer is the one who's seated at the table who's being served. But notice what Jesus says. Is it not the one who is seated at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Wow. Boy, talk about preparation. Talk about taking a teachable moment and hammering something really important home. It's like Jesus saying, really? You're arguing about which one of you is the greatest instead of jumping over each other to see who can serve others more? Isn't it about service more than it's about titles and about forcing your influence on others? And then Jesus made him a promise though. Notice he says, you are the ones who have remained with me in my trials. You'll recognize this word, the word remain, the Greek word hupomone. It means to abide, to continue, to stay permanently. And Jesus is commending them that even though they have lots of faults and they fall all the time, as we're going to continue to see, that Jesus is commending them for the fact that they have stuck with Him even when many others have already left. And Jesus says, because you've stuck with me, here's my promise. I grant to you a kingdom. Just as my Father granted to me that you may eat and drink again at my table in my kingdom. Back to that table fellowship. And notice this. You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The word judge means to rule, to govern. Jesus is promising His disciples. Because you've stuck it out and you stayed with me, when the kingdom comes, you will be given the responsibility of ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. Folks, as I've said to you before, it may not be our responsibility to rule over the twelve tribes of Israel, but God is going to give you and I a responsibility in the kingdom. Maybe our responsibility is to rule over some Gentiles. Us, in some way. To govern the kingdom. And He will base our role and responsibility in His kingdom based upon how we have lived our Christian life. That's what the Bible always teaches. Then He gives a word to Peter. This is a very important passage here. Verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan. The word Satan means an adversary who opposes. Don't ever forget, Christian, that we have an adversary who is always opposing us. That's what the name Satan means. And notice Jesus says to Simon, Satan has demanded. Literally in the Greek, it means to beg. Satan has begged to have you all. And to sift you like wheat. Notice something. Before Satan can do anything or a demon can do anything to a Christian who is in Christ, they have to ask permission. Notice that. Can't do anything. Think of the book of Job. Can't touch us without God's permission. God is sovereign. And notice... The word sift means to separate. 
They would separate the wheat from the chaff. And so Jesus is reminding us, when Satan tries to come into our life, you know what he tries to do? He tries to separate us from everything that's important. He tries to separate us from Jesus. He tries to separate us from our brothers and sisters in Christ. He tries to drive wedges. He's a divider. He's the devil. But notice what Jesus says in verse 32. I have prayed for you. Folks, if you don't carry anything else out of tonight, go out of here knowing that Jesus does pray for you. He prays for you. And here's the cool thing. Unlike every other word in the New Testament for the word prayer, this is a really cool word for prayer. It means to be bound or fastened to. In other words... The act of praying, the act of what Jesus is doing in talking to his father about Simon and the other disciples is because in his mind, he is bound and fastened to them. Folks, he's bound and fastened to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So Jesus has bound himself. He has obligated himself to you and he will pray for you. You can count on it. And then notice this. He says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Literally quit. And this word fail means a fall from which one can never get back up. Obviously, we know Peter falls here real soon. That's not the same. We all fall. We're going to fall in our Christian life. But what Jesus is praying for here is a fall that one cannot get back up from. Because notice what Jesus says next. I love this. He says, when you have turned back. In other words, when you've returned. In other words, Jesus is is right now getting ready to predict that Peter's going to deny him. And even in that, Jesus is also, in a sense, trying to foreshadow even to Peter, Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're going to deny me. But you're going to turn back. And you're going to have the opportunity to turn back. And guess what else Jesus says in this context? When you turn back, you strengthen others. In other words, just because you fall, Peter, doesn't mean that's the end of your usefulness as far as I'm concerned. You need to get back up, Peter, when you have fallen and return to me and I'll use you again. That's something a lot of Christians need to be reminded of. God understands we're going to fall at times. He never wants us to stay down. That's what Satan wants us to do. He will kick us when we are down. He will tell us when we fall or after we fall, you know, you can't be used anymore. You are useless. You, you are worthless. You are of no value to God. And Jesus here, even with Peter, the leader of his own disciples, is in a sense saying, you're going to fail miserably. But all you need to do is not make it a permanent thing. Don't quit, Peter. Don't ever quit. The only Christian that God can't use is the one who quits. And we know Peter didn't quit. He got back up. He strengthened his brothers. And God even used him miraculously on the day of Pentecost 
to reach thousands of people for the Lord. Peter said to him, though, I love this, verse 33, typical Peter, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. By the way, the word ready here means fit. Peter is declaring, I'm fit. I'm in spiritual shape. It's like a lot of us sometimes, isn't it? We think we're in better physical shape or better spiritual shape than we really are. It's only when the test comes that we realize how out of shape we are. And that's true physically. Many of us can go in for that stress test or whatever and go, Doc, I'm in shape. Get on the treadmill. <laughs> well, maybe I'm not in as good a shape as I thought. Because the tests that come will really show us what kind of shape we are really in. And Peter thought, I'm fit. I can do this. Notice what Jesus said. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. By the way, I need to stop here for a minute. This word deny is a really important word. It means to lose sight of. That's really important. Whatever you think, when you think of the word deny, from Jesus' perspective, denial comes through losing sight of several things. And the two things here in this word, it means you've lost sight of me, and you've lost sight of yourself. That's also implied in this Greek word. In other words, don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you, you have gotten to a place, Peter, where you will deny me because first of all, you've lost sight of me and you've lost sight of you. You have forgotten what I've called you to and what I've equipped you for and what I've given in your life and, and who you are. You have lost sight of that and that's why you end up where you are. A lot of Christians get there just like Peter. We get to a bad place in our life, not just because we lose sight of God in our lives, we lose sight of ourselves and who He's made us to be. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Then Jesus in verses 35 through 38 is basically reminding all of them. He said, look, when I sent you out, when I was with you, you lacked nothing. You were not inferior in any way. I gave you every resource, but he wants them to know times are changing and therefore they need to be flexible. They can't look at ministry the same way now. There's a growing hostility. There's a growing opposition. And what these words of Jesus, I think, mean to us is we can't always get locked into doing the same thing in the same way over a period of time. We've got to learn to be flexible and, and know what times we are in and what is demanded. And sometimes that means we need to change and be willing to change. We can't always do it the same way. That's why churches and, and people get left behind whenever they lock themselves into, that's the way we've always done it, and that's the way we're going to do it. Jesus says no. Because notice, in verse 35, when He said, hey, when I sent you out, you didn't take anything and you didn't lack anything, right? And they said, no, nothing. But now He says, verse 36, the one who has a money bag, go ahead and take it. Likewise, a traveler's bag too. And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy a sword. In other words, times are changing. You need to change with the times and be flexible in your approach. Let's get to preparation through prayer. Jesus went out, verse 39, made his way as he customarily did and went to the Mount of Olives. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray this word pray literally means to face God. Turn toward God. 
that you will not fall into temptation. He went away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. We could have, I could have spent a whole night on just this verse. I'll say this about this verse. Jesus is not declaring that He's unwilling to go to the cross and die for our sins. What He is bothered by, if you will, is the separation that He knows is going to take place in His fellowship with the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, Father, I'm willing. Because it's not about me, it's about your will. But if there would be any other way that we could accomplish this, then I sure would love that. But if there is no other way to accomplish salvation for humankind other than me becoming sin for them, then so be it. I'm willing to do it. That's what this verse means. An angel from heaven then appeared to him and strengthened him. Literally, he received strength. He grew stronger. And notice I put there in the notes, one of the reasons you and I can be prepared through prayer is because communing with our Father brings strength into our life. We want strength? Get with with God in prayer. Fellowship with Him. Then notice, this is very important, verse 44. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly. This word anguish is a great word. It means to wrestle or to struggle for something in order to gain a victory. And so notice here, even in the life of Jesus, the Son of Man and also the Son of God, that at this moment in his life, He was wrestling. He was struggling for victory in his life. Not everything comes easy as we know, and especially in the spiritual realm. We have to be willing sometimes to get into the arena and wrestle and struggle through things. Don't be discouraged when you go through sometimes those wrestling, struggling spiritual times in your life. I know it's not easy. I know we don't like it. But sometimes we just have to wrestle and struggle through things. Jesus' example of that. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When He got up from prayer, He came to the disciples, found them sleeping, exhausted from grief. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Literally fail the test. Jesus knew the test was coming and that if they didn't prepare themselves for the test, they were going to fail the test miserably. It was like taking a test in school and never studying for it. And Jesus has tried to prepare them through fellowship, through His example, and now through prayer. And obviously, they're physically and emotionally exhausted, but Jesus is trying to tell them there are some times where it's so important to be spiritually alert That sometimes you and I have to just push through the physical and emotional stress and exhaustion that we're under and make sure that we're still in communion and fellowship with God. Because if not, when that spiritual test comes like it did with Peter and the other disciples, we will fail the test. And so Jesus here is again emphasizing the importance of prayer. I'm going to get through this pretty quickly. In verse 47 is His arrest. And notice there, I put in the notes, he has the exchange with Judas where Judas comes up and kisses him and betrays him. 
But notice there I also put the courage of Jesus contrasted with the cowardice of His captors. I see that especially in verse 53 where Jesus said, day after day when I was with you in the temple courts, you didn't arrest me because you were scared of the people. So now you come out in the cover of darkness. You come out with this whole band of soldiers and I'm just this guy. I don't even, you know, I don't have any weapons. And yet Jesus just stood right up there and faced his captors. They were the ones that lacked courage, not Jesus. Jesus wasn't running away from what was happening. But they sure were scared of people. And then notice I also put there the power behind the human activity because Jesus goes on to say, this is your hour and that of the power or literally the influence of darkness. In other words, darkness is working here. And it's not just human activity. There's something behind the human activity. By the way, in this passage, you'll notice that Luke talks about uh, one of the followers of Jesus taking out a sword and cutting off Malchus's ear and Jesus taking the ear and putting it back on there and healing it. So I want, I want to leave this with you. Never forget that the last miracle Jesus ever did before He went to the cross was cleaning up a mess of one of His disciples. And notice Luke doesn't mention what, who the disciple is, but John does. Who was the disciple that cut off Malchus's ear? Peter. Yeah. Can you imagine Malchus? There was my ear on the ground, and then this guy Jesus just boop, puts a bit. It's fine, nothing wrong. Then they arrested Jesus, verse 54. They led him away, brought him to the high priest. And this is where Peter begins to deny. And here's the important principle out of all this with Peter. Peter was following at a distance. That's the key. Don't miss that in verse 54. That was the whole problem leading up to this. Peter thought he was fit. And therefore, he was following Jesus from afar. He was following Him remotely. You and I can't follow Jesus at a distance and expect to pass the test of life. We can't expect to rise to the challenges if we're following Jesus from a distance. We gotta follow him close. We gotta walk in his dust, if you will. And Peter, at this point in his life, was lagging behind. And it was gonna cost him. Again, I don't wanna take time. You know the story. Many come up to Peter and begin to question, aren't you with Jesus? And he denies Jesus three times. But here's what I want, here's what I want to, you to see tonight. In verse 60, I'll pick it up there. The last, very last denial, Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about as far as even who Jesus is. Don't miss this. Verse 60. At that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now flow with me into verse 61. Then the Lord turned Folks, that's not a casual glance. Jesus literally turned his body and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. But I want to bring you back to verse 61. This is so important. The look that Jesus gave Peter 
was not an I told you so look. The look that Jesus gave Peter was not a look of disappointment. The look that Jesus gave Peter was a look of love. It was, in spite of what you just did, Peter, I love you and I understand. Because remember what Jesus said to him earlier. I know you're going to fail me. I know you're going to deny me, but I'm not going to focus on that. I want you to get back up and return so that I can use you. Don't let that failure define you, Peter. I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you can do that can ever separate you and me from my love for you. I love you, Peter, even at the moment you denied me. That's why I tell people, God cannot love us any more than He ever has, and He can love us no less than He ever has. There's nothing you and I can do that ever is going to cause Jesus not to look at us with love. And if we could just if we could just accept that and receive that, it would transform our lives. Not to minimize our failures at all, but to maximize the love and grace of God. Now the men who were holding Jesus under guard began to mock Him. Notice then I have in the notes, Jesus before His enemies. Just give me two minutes and we'll wrap this up. The word mock here means to play around with or trifle with. You and I, or no human being, trifles with Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory. And they began to beat Him. Literally in the Greek, thrash Him. They blindfolded Him and asked Him repeatedly, prophesy, who hit you? They also said many other things against Him, reviling Him, speaking evil of Him, insulting Him. When the day came, the council of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law, and they led Jesus away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, the anointed Messiah, tell us. He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. You will absolutely, in the Greek language, absolutely never be persuaded. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts were so hard that even if He gave them the truth, they would not believe. And if I ask you, verse 68, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he answered, I am. In the Net Bible, it has, you say that I am. That is a bad translation. And you know, I love the Net Bible. But translations aren't perfect. The original is perfect. And in the original manuscripts, Jesus says, I am. Greek, ego emi. The same words that were translated in the Old Testament when Moses asked God in the burning bush, 
When I go to deliver my people, who should I say sent me? And what did God say? Say, I am has sent you. Jesus is clearly saying, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And we know that to be true with what the religious leaders say in verse 71 when they said, why do we need further testimony? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. Some people erroneously say Jesus never really claimed to be the Son of God or the Messiah. Yes, He did. That's the whole reason the religious leaders of Israel said He was a blasphemer and wanted the Romans to crucify Him. It was because He did openly, clearly state, I am. I am. Luke 22 is a chapter that portrays Jesus Christ as the consummate righteous sufferer. And Peter calls upon us to follow in his steps. To take his example of how he faced the things that he faced and how he lived life and even how he suffered. And Peter says to all of Christ's followers, follow him. Follow him. I know tonight that there was something in this passage that the Holy Spirit wanted to specifically bring into your life and really have you focus on. And I just pray that you will cling and grab a hold of whatever that is and carry that with you for the next several days. Don't leave it at the door tonight. Don't, don't leave it in the morning. Carry whatever the Holy Spirit is, is placing on your heart and carry it with you for a while from this passage tonight. Hey, before we close, a little bit of a humor. You'll notice down there in verse 69, the Bible talks much about the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God or seated on the right hand of God. So, cute story. Children are so cool. They have such a great perspective. This little boy was doing this picture and portraying all the beauty of God's creation and and the teacher was like looking over and saying, that's, that's a really great picture of all the beauty that God's created. And the little boy looks up and, and goes, yeah, and, and God did it with his left hand. And the teacher said, why? Because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. <laughs> all right, okay. Hey, listen, real quick before we dismiss in prayer tonight, I want to recognize a couple. Today is Jill Alsman's birthday. And tomorrow is our worship leader, Nicole's birthday. So make sure that you get by and say happy birthday to these gals. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the example of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his love that is so evident in this passage and how he dealt with Peter and the other disciples and how he sought to prepare them for what lay ahead. And Lord, he does the same with us. And tonight, Father, I pray that if we carry nothing else out, that we will remember that as Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus prays for us as well. 
Lord, may we be inspired and motivated and strengthened by, if nothing else, the mere fact and truth that Jesus is praying for us as we go through this life. And Lord, even if we fail like Peter, He wants us to get back up. He never wants us to quit so that He can use us again to strengthen others. Encourage us, Lord, with this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank